Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. This morning we begin a seven-part series on the story of the prodigal son. This is one of the most famous and one of the most compelling stories ever written, not only for those who know the Word of God and were raised in church, but in all of ancient literature. There are very few stories more well-known and more compelling than this one. And there's many reasons for this. I mean, I think it resonates because it not only tells this story, it tells the story of the Bible, it tells our story. But even as I was talking to someone before the first service this morning, they said, why is it that this, this little story here resonates with all of us? And there's a lot of reasons. I think the primary reason is, is that we all know a prodigal. We all know someone who has believed the lie of the enemy that leaving God and walking away from him is more satisfying and better and we've watched them do it and we've watched as their entire life has fallen apart. Many of you this morning have a prodigal in your life and in your family and you feel the weight of what it's like to know that someone walking away from the Lord is consistently making mistakes and walking in the wrong direction. It resonates because we all know a prodigal. It also resonates because we've all been the prodigal. Now, some of us more flamboyant than others, but all of us in some way or another have made decisions in which we've said, God, we know what you say, but we're going to believe the classic lie of the enemy, which we'll talk about next week, and we're going to go towards something that we think is more satisfying. You have experienced the weight and the pain and the guilt and the lifelong consequences often of the times in which we've walked away from the Lord. I think there's a deeper reason why this story resonates with us so much. It's because this story speaks to what I believe is the greatest longing of our heart. It is the longing of your heart, and you may or may not be able to even articulate it, but when you think about it, this is what all of us long for. It addresses the longing for home. The longing for home. The longing to be in a place in which we are fully known and at the same time fully accepted. When we are seen fully and then fully celebrated. Where we come to a place where we can just breathe. And the constant desire to be something that we're not, to put on a persona that we are not, all of a sudden that all goes away. We feel perfectly at rest and perfectly at home where our souls are at rest. We long to be home. The story of the prodigal son is a story about home. It tells us that there is a place where we belong. There is a place in which we can find that kind of rest. And it not only tells us there is that place, it shows us the way to get there. And it reminds us of the all-important truth that home is never actually a place. Home is always a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, the whole context for this story is set in the first two verses. Look with me at Luke 15. We cannot understand this story at all unless we understand what's happening in the moment. It says in verse 1, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, meaning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
Now, there are three parties present in this moment, and this is going to be important because these parties are represented in every one of the stories that is going to come, particularly in the story of the prodigal son. There is, first of all, the irreligious, those who aren't religious at all. They're referred to in verse 1 as tax collectors and sinners. In verse 2, they're simply known as sinners. Now, just to put in perspective the kind of people that are being talked about here, the tax collectors were the lowest of the low. And here's the reason. is because tax collectors were Jews. But Jews at the time were under the oppression of the Romans. So they lived in what they regarded as their land, but were being under the rule and authority of the Romans, and the Romans exploited them as a result. And one of the ways in which they constantly suppressed the Jewish people and kept them in check was to collect taxes from them. Now imagine being a Jew and constantly oppressed by the Romans, you would grow with some resentment, maybe even hatred toward the Romans. A tax collector is a Jew that in order to make money, sides with the Romans and begins to work for them in order to collect money. But they don't just collect the amount of money that is needed and required by the Romans. They collect a ex little extra money to line their own pockets. So they're thieves, they're swindlers, but they're stealing from their own people. So they're traitors and all of the Jews hate them. In every single way, by the Jewish people, tax collectors are absolutely disdained. And it says there's, there's sinners. Now, it's easy to think about sinners as the morally corrupt people. And, and this is true in some ways. Those who you just don't want your kids hanging out with. Those who have completely gone the right way. They're obvious sinners. We can see their sin. And I, I think that's a little bit of what's being addressed here. But it's actually deeper than that. It's really those who just simply don't belong Those who don't have a place to fit within the religious institution. They're the, the non-religious. They're the outsiders. You see, the religious of the day had set up this little categories of us versus them. We are the rule followers. They are the rule breakers. We are the righteous. They are the unrighteous. And it might not be that they're these big-time obvious sinners. It's simply those who don't fit. There's the tax collectors and sinners, the irreligious. The other group that is there is, is the religious. They're known in verse 2 as the Pharisees and scribes. They are the ones who pride themselves in knowing the law and doing the law. They see themselves as very distinct from sinners. There are the sinners, and in their minds, there are themselves, the, the righteous and the religious. There's really no way to understand this text without looking at what it says real quickly in Luke 18. Jesus tells a little parable, and I think this parable helps explain all of the gospel of Luke and everything Luke wants us to understand about what Jesus is doing. It says in verse 9 of Luke 18, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the religious leaders. So they see themselves as righteous, and because of that, they look at everyone else with contempt or disdain. So he tells this story. Two men went up into a temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the people represented in Luke 15. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. The condemnation just oozes out of him. 
says in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off because he wouldn't come near would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in the most shocking statement, Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He says this parable to those who thought they were righteous and had contempt for the unrighteous. And what he says to them is that in reality, it's the unrighteous that are going to get into the kingdom, the, the, the irreligious more than the religious because the religious are so full of pride. This is the group we're talking about, the irreligious and the religious. There's one other group present in Luke 15. It's Jesus. He's referred to in verse 2 as this man. This man receives sinners and eats with them. He's in a category by himself. He's not a part of the irreligious. He's not a part of the religious. He's Jesus. And he is his own category, and he is here receiving sinners. Now, the tax collector, I mean, the, the Pharisees and scribes are, are grumbling at what he's doing. And the reason is, is because the two words that are very important in verse 2. The word receive and eat. Now, there are two Greek words for receive. One simply means to welcome in and to allow to come in. But there's another word that is deeper than that. It's a word that means to receive as a friend. To welcome and to embrace to welcome into fellowship, to love someone. This is the word that Jesus uses. It is a word that refers to the absolute welcoming, embracing of someone and bringing them in to fellowship. This is what Jesus was doing with tax collectors and sinners. But even worse than that, it says he eats with them. Now, that is the Middle Eastern sign of acceptance. That is a symbol of wanting to be close there's a book that's been written called Eating Your Way Through the Gospel of Luke. It's a wonderful book. But it shows about the significance of meal sharing all throughout Jesus' ministry. One of the primary ways that Jesus displayed the kingdom was by eating with people. He reclined with tax collectors and sinners as a sign of welcoming them to himself. So Jesus, in this moment, was spending time with the irreligious and the religious were angry. So in response to what Jesus knew was going on in this moment, he tells three stories. Now the three stories are all listed for us in Luke 15, but reality is they're just one story. Look at what it says in verse 3. So he told them this parable, and then he tells them three stories. And you will see the reason for this is because all three of these stories are telling us the same story. Let's read them together. If you're there in Luke 15, verse 3, say amen. He told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over 90, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. When he had come to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead, is alive. He was lost and is found. This is why I say to you, there are three stories, but Jesus says this story because they're simply, essentially all telling the same thing. In every story, there's something lost. There's something that is diligently sought after. There is something that is found. And there's a party. Every single one of them, not only invite, it ends with celebration, but inviting others in with a large party and a celebration. Now, it is important to see all three of these stories because every single one of them does show us an increasing value. Every one of us pulls, every one of these stories pulls on us a little bit heavier. I mean, the first is about one of a hundred that is lost, one percent, and it's a sheep. Now, it's hard, I'm sure, to lose a sheep, and I don't know much about this, but I would imagine that if you lose one sheep and there's 99 left, you're going to have more sheep. It might even be by the time you get back from finding the one, there's more sheep there, right? 99 sheep are going to have more sheep. And so, yes, it's hard to lose one, but you're going to get more sheep, which shows it even more amazing that the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after that one sheep and the importance of the sheep, but still, it's one out of 100, and you can get more sheep. The next passage is one out of ten. A woman has one coin, and now 10% of everything that she has has been lost. And the coins are not really a reference to monetary value. 
these were like family heirlooms. They were collected from generations. They were displayed. They were often worn. They were shown to people who came over. They had incredible sentimental value apart from the monetary value. And one out of the ten has been lost. Ten percent of all of our coins were gone. It is an increasing value because of how sentimental it was. You come to the third story, and it's different. It's 50%. One out of two has been lost, but the weight of it is not in the percentage. The weight is in the fact that it's something that just can't be replaced. It's a son. You can get another sheep, and you can find another coin, but you can't get another son. And all of a sudden, we begin to feel the weight and the emotion of the increasing value of every one of these stories. Till you get to the end, and it begins to resonate right more with us that this is a son that has been lost, that has made the foolish decision of wandering away from home where the father knows he will be in danger and will lose it all. The son, in his own ignorance, does not understand this. And neither do the religious leaders. And Jesus was telling these stories not only to reveal his heart, but primarily to reveal their hearts. He tells the story to show the religious leaders who look at everyone else with this condescending attitude that they too, even though quietly, are a prodigal just like the younger brother. You see, the conflict in this text is not a result of the fact that Jesus is near to sinners. The conflict in this text is a result of the fact that the religious are distant from God. I want to say that again. I know it's early, you're tired. The conflict in this text is really not about Jesus being near sinners. It's about the religious being distant from God. Now, the problem is that the religious somehow had just missed the most foundational truth of the Bible. Now, let me just tell you something here. The fact that the religious leaders missed this should be terrifying to us. It's humbling to us. It makes us reminded how important it is for us to continue to open the Word of God, not with our presuppositions, but to come here and say, God, I want to understand you and your heart. Because these are people who had spent their life studying and practicing the law, yet the most basic foundational truth of Christianity has been missed by all of them. And the truth is this, that God highly values, deeply loves and aggressively pursues the lost. If you want to write something down, this would be a good one to write down. The most foundational truth in which everything else in Scripture rests. If you don't get this, and what I mean is not just get it up here. If you don't know it in here, you will always run from God. The most foundational truth is that God highly values, deeply loves, and aggressively pursues the lost, and he always has. It is the very nature of God to value, love, and pursue people. And I know you know this, but this is the most unique thing about Christianity. That every other religion is about man seeking God. Christianity is always about God seeking man. God always takes the initiative. He always comes towards us. We are always the one running away, and God is always the one run, running to come to us. This is how the story began. In Genesis 3, you know what Adam and Eve do? They leave home. Because what happens in this moment is they believe the lie of the enemy that God has not given them what's best. 
And the enemy comes and says, there's something better out there. God doesn't really love you. And believing the lie of the enemy, they walk away from the presence of God, which is always leaving home, in hopes to find something better than what God promised, which never happens. We'll talk about this lie next week. And all of a sudden, they begin to experience what all of us experience when we walk away from home, the guilt and the shame and the condemnation. And in that moment, everything in us wants to do the same thing. We want to run away and hide. Adam and Eve didn't want to see each other. Adam didn't want to see Eve, and Eve didn't want to see Adam. They were ashamed, and they didn't want God to see them. So here they are, hiding from God, hoping that he will not find them. And the next words they hear are this. Where are you? Where are you? It's the voice of God coming after them. They're running and hiding, full of shame, convinced God will never want to see them again. And the first words they hear is, here is, where are you? It is God coming into the garden, trying to find them, pursuing them, because this is what God has always done. And the reality is, is that at some point in our life, as we get distant from God, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's because in the midst of our sin and our shame, we simply heard a quiet voice saying this, where are you? I I want you back. Like I'm here and, and I've come after you and I want you. And there is no book of the Bible that shows us this more than the book of Luke. The gospel of Luke tells us As Colossians 1 does, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. As John 1 tells us, that no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus makes him known. And what we see in the Gospel of Luke is this loving, valuing, pursuing heart of God in the ministry of Jesus Christ. I mean, in Luke 5, do you remember this story? Jesus is collecting his apostles, gathering them together. And this is the 12. There were many more disciples. His apostles were the unique ones that were given special authority. And he goes by the tax collector's office and he sees Matthew and he says, come follow me. Matthew leaves and he comes and follows Jesus. Jesus not only brings the tax collector in and makes him an apostle, he then goes to Matthew's house where Matthew invites all of his tax collectors and sinners' friends and they eat together. And it tells us in Luke 5 that in that moment, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to grumble about this and complain about this. And they ask, why is it that he eats with sinners to which Jesus responds, I have come to call the righteous, not the sinner, and the sinners to repentance. I haven't come for the righteous. I've, I've come to call sinners to repentance. In other words, this, this is why I came. Like I came to do this. In Luke 19, Jesus is preaching thousands of people around him. For some reason, Jesus spots a man up in a tree. His name is Zacchaeus. And Jesus could have gone to anyone's house to eat, but in front of everyone, he points out Zacchaeus, a tax collector, and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. He goes and eats with Zacchaeus as a sign of their friendship together. And it tells us in Luke 19 that the people begin to grumble. It's the only other time the word grumble is used. It's used in Luke 15. It's used in Luke 19. The religious leaders grumbled because Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they say, why does he do this? To which he responds, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You see, every moment of the life of Jesus was reflecting to us the very heart of God that Jesus highly values, deeply loves, and aggressively pursues the lost. And all of Luke 15 is a picture of that. Luke 15, Jesus is the shepherd 
that runs after the lost sheep and diligently pursues until he finds it, brings him back in by carrying him on his shoulder and throws a party to celebrate. In Luke 15, Jesus is the woman who has lost a coin and it says that she diligently searches for the coin and when she finds it, she calls all of her friends and all of her neighbors and they, they celebrate. And in Luke 15, Jesus is the father who when he sees the prodigal son after he had shamed his father publicly and cost him a third of everything that he had, and after the son had been practicing his speech in order to make it right with the father, I don't deserve to be your son, I only want to be your hired servant, before the son can get all the words out of his mouth that he rehearsed, the father sees him, feels compassion, runs, embraces, kisses him, kills the fatted calf, puts new shoes on his feet, and a robe on him, and a ring on his finger, and throws a party. Because Jesus is the one that highly values, deeply loves, and aggressively pursues the lost. And this basic fact of Christianity, the most important foundational understanding of the Bible, the religious leaders simply could not comprehend. Here's what's so incredible. While the religious could not see this part of Jesus, there was one group that could. This may be the most staggering thing about what's happening here in the first two verses. But while the religious leaders did not understand the heart of God and did not understand the way in which he loves and values and pursues people, the irreligious did. They got it. Look what it says in verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. There was something about Jesus that made the religious angry and grumbling. There was also something about Jesus that made the irreligious, the misfits, those who had never thought they had a place in the kingdom, feel drawn to Jesus. That is an unbelievable thought. That somehow Jesus talked in such a way and reacted in such a way and lived in such a way that the worst of the worst that never felt welcomed into the church felt welcome to eat with Jesus. That somehow Jesus' life communicated this. You're valuable, I love you, and I welcome you in. You know that this is all that any of us ever want. All that any of us will ever, ever want is to feel valued and to feel loved and to feel pursued. Every one of us want that. I don't care how tough of a shell you put on around you. What you want is someone to value you, someone to love you, and someone to pursue you, to make you feel valuable. And when you do that, people are drawn to you. There is a joyfulness about Jesus. I don't know how you see him this way, but there's a joyfulness about Jesus. No one is drawn to a cranky, self-righteous man. That's not who you want to go eat with. So there's an ease about him, a, a joy about him, and something about the way he looked at you made you feel as if you mattered to him. He must have looked or spoken a way that made you feel in a way that no one else had ever made you feel that finally you found someone that made you feel important, that made you feel valued. And he was coming after you and he longed to be with you. This is what they found in Jesus. And I think the reason is Jesus didn't look down on sinners. He looked at sinners. He just, he looked them in the eye. He stopped, 
and he looked at them. And by looking at them and stopping and noticing them, he communicated value to them. Do you know that Jesus does not look at a homosexual with disdain? Do you know that Jesus does not look at a prostitute with disdain? God does not look at the sexually confused transgender with disdain. God does not look at the homeless with disdain. God does not even listen, hold on, he doesn't even look at the Muslim with disdain. That if any of them were to interact with Jesus, they would sense in him and in his eyes and the way in which he spoke that they were valuable to him and they mattered to him. And he is going to call them to repentance. He is going to call them to leave their foolishness and come back home. He is going to call them to that. But you know that they will never even listen to the call unless they first feel valued and loved and pursued. Not simply because we want to fill the seats, but because they matter. Somehow, the irreligious got it while the religious completely missed it. See, Jesus didn't have trouble with the irreligious. He had trouble with the religious who disdained the irreligious. The religious who looked down on the lost and did not see themselves as one of them. Think about this with me. We, we kind of always tend to think about the story of the prodigal son as a story about that one son who left home. But you know, the, the story of the prodigal son is about three sons who left home. The first one is that prodigal son, the, the famous one who really left home. He uh, was distant from the father. What he said in his request is, Father, I don't love you. I just want your stuff. He shamed the father publicly. He took a third of everything the father had. And he went and in a moment, leaving home, getting as far away as he could, squandered everything, ended up in a pigsty. And all he wanted was to be fed with the pods the pig ate. But not only did the people he with not value him as a son, they didn't even value him as a pig. There's that one. But you know at the end of the story, that son's home? He's home. And, and, and he's cleaned up and he's got a robe on him and he's got a ring symbolizing that he's a part of the family. And the fatted calf reserved for the greatest celebration has been given to him. He's home and right with his father. Yes, he ran away. But at the end of Luke 15, he's back home and everyone is celebrating. The one that was dead is now alive. The one that was lost has been found. You know, there's, there's another son who's away from home in Luke 15. It's the older son. You realize at the end of Luke 15, the older son is outside the house and refuses to come in. The father pleads with him, hey, come in. And he refuses to come in. Why? Because he's the self-righteous religious who is pouting and grumbling and refuses to come in because he's mad that his younger brother is getting grace. You see, the way in which we see where we are in this story is really to see the way in which we view sinners. Because it is easy to be known as the outwardly sinful prodigal, distant from God, it is also easy for everybody to think that you're inside the house in right relationship with God when the reality is you've kept all the rules, you've done everything right, but at the end of the day, you really don't love God, nor do you love the people that God loves. The older brother is outside of the home and refuses to come in. And we really fit into, into one of those categories at some point in our lives. But there's another son who left home in Luke 15. 
You say, Pastor, there, there's no way. I, you, you told the story already. You read it. There's two sons. There's an older son, a younger son. And you said specifically that the father lost 50% of what he had, which means there's only two, and, and, and one has already gone. Well, listen, there, there is another son in Luke 15 that left home. And he's the one telling the story. You see, this story is told by a son who left home, not out of rebellion to the father, but out of obedience, not because he hated the father, but because he loved the father. Not simply because he wanted to get away from home, because he wanted to bring other people home. This is told by Jesus who left his home and left his father so that he might bring sinners home. He's the son who left home so that all people might come back home. All people, the religious, the irreligious, everyone who is lost, which both of those people are, he has come to bring them home. And when you see Jesus in this way, as a precious beloved son in obedience to the father, leaving his home in pursuit of us, loving, valuing pursuit of us to bring all of us home, it begins to confront us with some serious questions about life and church. I just want to ask you some questions for you to think about this morning. The first one is simply this. Do you see Jesus like the sinners did? What do, you, what do you think about when you think of Jesus? He's not a stern, distant, angry, grumpy man. There's something about Jesus completely compelling, something that we long to be with. We see something in Jesus and we think, that's what I want and, and that's what I've been looking for. How else is it? That, have you ever noticed? Jesus walks by somebody's office, says, follow me, and they do it. That's crazy. How? Because in that moment, there was something about his eyes and something about the way that he spoke that made you feel for the very first time you were highly valued and deeply loved. That is the Jesus that we gather to celebrate. I, I don't know about the Jesus that other people gather to celebrate. I don't know what Jesus other churches are talking about, but that's our Jesus. The Jesus that the sinners saw. Was joyful and pursuing and loving a friend of sinners, not loving them because they've cleaned up their act, loving them because they're just a complete mess. Do you see Jesus the way sinners do? Let me ask you this. Do you see sinners like Jesus does? Maybe a more confronting question, the question that has been the heaviest on me as I've studied this text, do you see sinners like Jesus did? Do you see sinners as valued and loved and pursued and welcomed? And just like the other brother, if we do not see the homosexual, if we do not see the transgender or the Muslim or the homeless or the prostitute in the same way Jesus does, we've missed the heart of God. I can't tell you how heavy this is on my heart. If people are not feeling that way about us, and about this church, we've missed something. And I think the things that's so alarming to me about this text is how easy it is to be a rule-following religious person and not get God at all. And listen, if we call ourselves a Christian, a follower of Jesus, if we are a Christian church, God help us that we should be a place where every time someone hears the name of our church or walks into this place, there is something about the way in which we look at them and something about the way in which we encourage them that makes them feel valued and loved and pursued by God. Do 
we see them the way that Jesus did. My last question is this, is do you see yourself like Jesus does? Can you hear me on this one? Do, do you see yourself the way Jesus does? Jesus sees you as lost. Because all of us, whether you're a rule-following older brother or a rule-breaking younger brother, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We're all lost. And we have all abandoned home. We have all, at many moments in our life, said, God, I know what you say. I know what you say, but I'm going to choose to do this because I don't believe you. I believe something's better. And every time we've woken up to realize we believed a lie. All of us have been the lost son. As a result of that, all of us deserve eternal hell. God sees us as lost, hell-bound sinners who have wandered away from home that are deeply valued and loved. God does not love you because you're good. God loves you because he's good. Like God's not looking at something valuable in you. He sees you as a lost sinner, but deeply values and loves you anyway. And what he's doing from Luke 15 is he's calling you home. Whether you have just for a moment stepped away from home and you were living in sin, or whether you have always been away from home and have never come back to the Father, Luke 15 is saying, trust the heart of God and come home. There is no one that values you and loves you and is coming after you more than Jesus Christ. Come home. There's a little song we sing often here by Prince that says this. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You and I are wretches. You're a wretch. I'm a wretch. And incredibly treasured by God. And that's the gospel. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.